It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Film lovers, welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And it's Pledge Weekend, so 1-800-233-0020, or go to WFYI.org slash give to support all the programming on HD1 and HD2 so you can support shows, yes, even like this one. Joining, <laughs> laughing and joining me. It's a serious pledge spot, man. What do you, do you see? Breaking my vibe here is my guest and uh, and longtime uh, film yapper and IFJA member and friend and, and, of course, the best-dressed film critic in town, Christopher Lloyd. How are you, sir? Good to be here. Good to be here. I'm sorry to be laughing, but the way the way you pitched that almost sounded like you know, give to give to WFYI, even if you don't want to give to this show. Oh, you know, the show, uh, you know, what I think I learned from day one, always get to the punchline before anybody else. There so, you go. There, and there's like eight movies opening this week. Literally you, you, eight movies <laughs> opening this week, which really isn't as mu- many as it sounds. Um, you know, we Indianapolis, we typically about average probably about five, six new movies a week. So we're, we're, we're above, but we're not great. I think the record... Beck and I was uh, entertainment editor at the the lo- local mercantile association slash newspaper. Uh, I think the record was 11, 11 in one week. Do you remember what any of those were that week? No, no, of no. Just have a list. And and for some reason, and I uh, for some reason, there's a film opening in Richmond, and it's not here, but it's some found footage thriller. But anyway, there's there's plenty. There's there's got to be something for somebody out there. Yeah. What, what did you see this week? Well, I saw uh, one that really surprised me uh, and knocked my socks off. was called The Promise, which is a World War One film starring Oscar Isaac as a Armenian medical student. You just lost Kobe Slagle. Yeah, who uh, he uh, gets involved with a, a love triangle. Charlotte Laban plays the lady love. She's actually uh, associated with uh, American AP reporter played by Christian Bale. Uh-oh. Um, but really the story is about the Armenian genocide of World War One, which, you know, is one of those huge things that just sort of gets swept under the rug of history. And, in fact, the film has been targeted for uh, retribution by genocide de- de- deniers, uh, the most telling of which was that if you go on the, the film's IMDb page, as a terribly, terribly low rating, you know, for people to give it scores. And here's a tell. 
Um, the film debuted last fall at the Toronto Film Festival and played in three showings, so maybe, you know, 650 or 700 people total saw the movie. Um, but that week it had 80,000 ratings on imdb.com it's like bragging about being an extra in hoosiers yeah uh and almost all of them were like one star reviews so you can tell probably actually my favorite film i've seen so far this year uh great great performance i think career defining performance by oscar isaac the his him and his performance and the film in general reminded me in a lot of ways of dr Zhivago. i was about to say that because when you started describing it that had had a, a david lean feel to it sort of yeah and so it really is it, it has all the hallmarks of a classic epic it's got like the big human story in the backdrop but the smaller intimate tale front and center uh you know this really sort of like noble character you know tr- trying to like you know be kind in a in an age of strife and hatred um, and really, I just I love the movie. Wow, who directed it? Remember? I forget. It's it's in my review. That's right. You can go to the film yap and go check that out. Yeah, <laughs> as Matthew and anyone who knows knows me knows, my Achilles heel as a critic is I'm terrible with names and titles. So like literally, unless I've got it right in front of me as I'm writing or whatever, I can't remember anything. Uh, that's really okay. I'll look it up while you tell about the next film you you're, you're going to talk about. Uh, the next one directed by uh, Sheboygan Miskasot. Actually, I just made that up because uh, I can't remember her name either. Oh wait a minute. I'm sorry, Terry George. Yes, yeah, Terry um, George, Terry, who did um, the boxer, some mother's son, um, worked on in the name of the father. Yeah. So yeah, uh, cool. Uh, yeah, wrote Hotel Rwanda. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going through it now. Um, standoff Hotel Rwanda, Reservation Road, not a date film. Some mother's son, not a date film. Yeah, actually, I remember the director of the next film, Unforgettable. It's because her name's Denise Denovi. She's a very well-known producer in Hollywood. Produced Heather's. Yeah, and this is actually her her directing debut. This now I have to I have to preface this. Uh, now I have not seen this, but but my buddy Laura Jansen and I we would get together in the '90s and have too much liquor and watch how so bad it's fun films, and it, it started with my buddy Laura and a couple other friends of ours. It was kind of the 90s hatred for Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah. And it was a one-two punch of Hand the Rocks the Cradle and Guilty as Sin. Yeah. And films like Jade. And, I mean, it looks like it's a throwback to those 90s erotic thriller. Please tell me it is. Uh, it is. It's not so erotic. Um, but it's, it's Or psychotic. <laughs> Hand the Rocks the Cradle is the best sort of, you know, a comparison film. Single white female. Uh, mother's Boys. Yeah, yeah. It's, about, it's about women in conflict with other women, usually about men, but also, you know, they're, they're fighting over a man or they're fighting over a child or they're fighting over some professional thing or some combination thereof. Uh, and, you know, you just know it's going to come down to hair pulling and stabby stabby at so some point or another. But it's not directed or produced by Aaron Spelling. No, no. Uh, and so it stars Rosario Dawson, and she's like the uh, the new girl in town. She's moving to this tiny, very well-to-do, uh, small Southern California town where her boyfriend runs. He gave up a life at Merrill Lynch to start his own beer brewery. Um, and Hunky he, brewery, yeah, yeah. copper copper mining brewery, as I recall. <laughs> oh, the fifth one of those in the country. Yes, and the name of the town is Foothill, Foothill, California. <laughs> it's a subdivision land. <laughs> yes, uh, and it sort of looks like Sonoma, California meets Carmel, Indiana. That's kind of what it looks like. But shot in Pennsylvania. But shot in Pennsylvania, <laughs> yeah, uh, or or Georgia, right? <laughs> uh, um, but. Uh, 
uh, and she comes down, and the, he used to be, I can't remember his name, but it's not important, because you know, this, this is totally. He's just a, young, and he's a handsome, and, you know, is the is the target. Yeah, you know, he's good looking, suspiciously combs his hair to the forward, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, and uh, Catherine Heigl plays the ex-wife, who's just totally Stepfordish, you know, tall, blonde, icy, has no job, but has tons of money. Meanwhile, you know, he's struggling to get his company, and so I kept wondering, like, where's all the money coming from? Because so, like she's buying horses for their daughter that they share custody of, and meanwhile, he's like, I can't pay my lawyer. I hate movies like that where it's like the money. If if you can't if you can't get the small details, it, it's like well, like you know, like movies and TV shows where they're, like they're talking about like Roseanne, like you're you know something like where you said like this is a poor family or like you know lower lower end middle class, and then you go in like the kids' bedroom and it's like eighteen by twenty in there. How about the rent control and Friends? Yes, yes, exactly. But um, I mean, this is totally a trashy garbage movie, but. Kind of enjoyable trashy garbage. Really? See, I think the, I, I was trying to think the last time they tried something like this, and then two came to mind. One was the boy next door, yeah, with Jennifer Lopez, and I, I, I didn't like it. And I probably because I was sober when I watched it. I think if I was with my buddy and I had a couple cocktails, I might have enjoyed it more. The other was obsessed with Idris Elba and uh-huh. Beyonce, yeah, which also had a big girl on girl fight near the end. It, so it, it, I mean, it sounds—is it fun, bad, or I mean, is it well it's done? It's fun. It's fun, bad. It, it knows what it is. It okay. embraces the silliness of what's going on. Which is all we ask. You know, it's a movie made by women for women. Someone said it's sort of like you know an upscale Lifetime Channel movie. <laughs> um, someone else, you know, again, With a budget, yeah. women versus women. Uh, someone else summed it up for me well. Is uh, it's the uh, the small but vibrant genre of white bees be crazy. Um, <laughs> Obviously, it's a stand-in word we, there. We wish, you know, if you go to your family video and ask for that section. Yeah, it's it's small section, but there's some fun titles there. And, and I admit, I, I I had a little guilty fun with this one. Is your wife going to give you flack if it's on at 2 a.m. and you just kind of give it 20 minutes on cable? Uh, well, I don't do that, so oh, do that? Okay, I, I'm not a I'm well, not a I'm not a flip on the TV and see what's on kind I, of guy. I'm sorry, I just revealed myself. That's <laughs> that's really okay. Uh, all right, I, my turn because I should. I'm the, I'm the guest. I um. I, I watched Free uh, Free Fire, which that looked interesting. That cast, that well, setup, and, and it's funny because they're pushing it as because Martin Scorsese is one of the executive producers. I'm like, oh great, a brilliant filmmaker who got helped get money for this. Yes, and it's directed by Ben Wheatley, who gave us the the kind of Ken Russell esque uh, High Rise uh-huh. last oh, year, yeah, which yeah. is just kind of a it's visually fascinating, bizarre film. <clears throat> But this is one. Um, okay, I, I guess I will ask you. How did you feel about the 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 Tarantino knockoffs of the '90s, post Reservoir Dogs, post Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Well, they were never as good as the originals, of course. And you know, on some level, you sort of resented them for trying. Funny you should mention that, Chris, because apparently they're back in vogue with yeah. this film. It's uh, it's set in a Boston warehouse in the '70s. And uh, feathered we, hair, we yes, a lot of feathered hair, and it's almost that kind of wacky clothes, big shoulder pads, uh, facial hair. But you have a, a, an interesting cast, and this is another one of those. If you if you remember films like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, yeah. Two Days in the Valley, Suicide Kings, where you have a fascinating cast 
throw them in a blender with guns and snappy dialogue, and you got a film. Well, that's what they did here. You have you have Brie Larson, who I, I am imagining got more money for this than she did in Room, but not nearly as much as Kong. No. Um, or Ar- Captain Marvel. Or Captain Marvel, true. Uh, Army Hammer, Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy with a mustache looks like Billy Crudup in Almost Famous. <laughs> um the guy we loved, and we're waiting for another rise from him, Charlotte Copley, yeah. who we loved in District 9, and I actually liked him in the A-Team, and kind of like uh, Neil uh, Benkloff, his career hasn't really come close. Yeah, he, he keeps working. I don't He's think a, Hollywood quite knows what to do. Right. I liked him in Maleficent as the, the you know, he plays the, the young prince who becomes king, right. and he's sort of, you know... Turns to evil and sort of knows he's done that, but on some level you don't hate him as much as you think you would. Yeah, I mean, I, I like him. He's he's you'll see. He's a, he's he is a classic kind of that guy. Uh, Army Hammer is yeah. in this as well. Noah Taylor, who's an, another Hall of Fame that guy, and it's it's a it's a uh, a gun a gun purchase gone horribly horribly. Yeah, wrong. like my understanding, is, I didn't see it. With uh, Ali Cavanaugh, so the film app has a review up, and she doesn't like it that much. She says it's one of those films that. Is it nearly as clever as it thinks it is? No. And sort of, you know, you resent it for, for doing so. And so, you know, the first half is the snappy dialogue and the tension, and you're just waiting for the bullets to literally and figuratively fly, and then they do. And it's it's funny because we were at, I was at the press screening this week, and uh, our, our buddy, your colleague, uh, our colleague, uh, Joe Shearer, was kind of laughing his butt off. And it was one of those, we were talking about it. I didn't like the film because it was trying to be an homage to the post-Tarantino, you know, the post-Reservoir Dog films, and that's exactly why Joe liked it. Yeah. So it's it's one of those. I I didn't have fun with it. a lot of you know, like I said, a lot of shooting and crawling through the dirt and people getting hit and you're trying to figure out where it's going to go next and so anyway, it's I'm sure more people I think as Joe once said in the show, y'all like it. Um I I did not. So <laughs> Um, and actually, that, this brings up something that I wanted to address uh, here on the because what I love about the show and having Chris here is we can throw these topics anywhere and he picks up without a beat. <laughs> um, it's an interesting fact, and I have to credit the the AV Club for noting this, pointing this out. But um, in the film that we were just discussing, Free Fire, they use "Run Through the Jungle" by Creedence Clearwater Revival, and it's the second time. That there's a film involving Brie Larson and that song. Of course, mm. she was in Kong Skull Island. and Or as I believe Kobe and Bianchi used to say, if you hear CCR, you know the film is about Vietnam. <laughs> well, this one, it's, it's the 70s. There's also a John Denver song that's used to ad nauseum. But I was, I was talking about songs that we associate with films and if a song from a film changes. Now, Run Through the Jungle, I will always associate with the drop-off in The Big Lebowski which is actually happening tonight, Saturday, at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin. We'll get to that in a little bit. But an example of a song that I associate with one film but I have changed is um, the song Smoke It's In Your Eyes by The Platters. Yeah. Great, great 50s doo-wop ballad. And it was used beautifully in the school dance between Ron Howard and Cindy Williams in American Graffiti. I think it's used even better... As the final song, the dance between Tom Courtney and uh, Charlotte Rampling at the end of the the underrated great drama, 45 Years. Mm -hmm. And I I watched the film again last week. I got it on Blu-ray. And that was a film, and for those who don't know, it's uh, Rampling and and Courtney have have been married for the title of the film. And a woman from Courtney's past, even before he met his wife, who had uh, he and the woman were uh, hiking. She fell into a a hole, 
and they never found the body. Well, a week before their 45th wedding anniversary, they find the body. And it span, it go, the film goes through a span of a week, and the obsession over this piece of news destroys the marriage, basically. Yeah. And it's, it's just a beautifully understated piece of acting for both of them. Charlotte Rampling got an Oscar nomination. I think we, we deemed her runner-up in our awards. It's just a great, great film. And the final moment, with the use of that song, took my breath away. I mean, I literally gasped out loud when I saw it at the end. And I watched it again, and I didn't gasp as loud, but I still did. It's, yeah. it's that potent. So... I um I wanted to ask you, Chris, and I, I, I put it out on, on my Facebook page. Is there a song that you associate with one film that maybe has changed? The, of course, the exception to that is you can't count the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter because Scorsese used it three times, and he didn't top it with Goodfellas. Yeah, no I'm, disrespect to The Departed or Casino. Yeah, you asked me to think, think about this, and I, I have to admit I'm still struggling to come up with a good one just because um, – you know, the way I feel about music and film, I think, is a lot different from the way others do. Like, you know, I think it was starting about three or four years ago, the IFJ started, you know, we started giving out an award for best film score. Right. And I was one of the people that actually objected that I preferred us to not give out that award just because I feel that music is best used almost always, not always, but almost always in film when you don't, aren't really consciously aware of it. Okay. Um, you know, uh, so that it, it, it's sort of there and it, it adds to the moment and it pushes it without sort of taking over. There are times, I think, where music can come to the fore. Like I'm thinking of the great atonal musical score of There Will Be Blood, where, you know, where it's just sound and that music and the music totally is a character in the movie. I would say Ennio Morricone in, yeah. in his Spaghetti Westerns. So I so my problem is, like, I can think of films where, like, there's a song that actually, because it's a familiar song that stands out to me. Uh, like the Eric Clapton one in Goodfellas, uh, Layla by Derek and the Dominoes, yeah, yeah, which is an w- w- interesting song because it you know essentially exists in two different parts that t- that to me are really distinctive from each other, um, and people sort of remember the 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 musical portion of it that's uh, used in Goodfellas, but like has that song ever been used in another film? I can't even think. of I it. I can't uh, that the piano coda in Layla, just that because that's what's yeah. used in the montage when all the guys start dropping after the heist. Um, I don't think so. And it's probably smart, yeah. Um, because I like again, there's there are certain songs I think that are they're kind of maybe forever marked because my my daughter, who's 15, um, associates the song "I Heard It Through the Grapevine" by Marvin Gaye with her with her uh, school choir. I always associate it with the beginning of the Big Chill, and I wound up watching that. I had to show it to her. It was one of those I've and you'll you'll do this when they get old. Sit down. Let me show you this. This is what it means to me. So yeah. Uh, I'll go through a few examples that I had on my page. Jared wrote a triple, Valkyrie, oh, yeah. by Wagner. First from the original, then from Apocalypse Now, <laughs> Big Bang Theory, and then somebody had it in, don't forget the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Um, let's see, Tiny Dancer and Almost Famous. Oh, he read, it, he wrote, he wrote the, read the question wrong. Um, Live and Let Die. With my buddy Judy, who wrote from the Bond film of the same name to the BBC show Life on Mars. Oh, I I would have thought it. of Jennifer Lawrence cleaning the house in American Hustle. Yeah, but it doesn't change it. Um, somebody Jonathan writes also using Gross Point Blank. Um, Brian Brian Hartz, who actually hopefully will be on the show next week because we actually we, we he and I were going to discuss the the two soundtracks to the two Death Wish first two Death Wish films, Herbie Hancock and Jimmy Page. 
He writes, nobody who has seen A Clockwork Orange will ever quite be able to forget it when hearing Singing in the Rain. Yeah. You just made, you just made the ghost of Gene Kelly mad. Um, let's see. Unchained Melody. Okay, so now they're just posting articles. Glenn Miller's A String of Pearls in Big. Um, Brian also writes, Cheek the Cheek is probably well known after having been featured in The English Patient and The Green Mile more than Top Hat. Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, Tracy Forner, our guy, who you had quality time with earlier. ELO's Mr. Blue Sky and Shaun of the Dead, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Love Mine, Mega Mine, and Dougal, and probably others. Oh. That's probably true. Do we have a list of one of the 8,000 movies where Who Let the Dogs Out <laughs> was used? You mean, they're, and they're all animated kid films involving animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Michael Spear. Hey, Michael. Michael writes, I'm late to the party, but can you hear me knocking from the, by the Rolling Stones, using Casino, otherwise used in the introduction to Blow? Mm. That's pretty good. Um, and my buddy Denise says, I always associate Smoke Kitchen in Your Eyes with the film Always. So anyway, that's there's there's some titles. But that anyway, I, I uh, yeah, that's why we do this. We break down film music scores and stuff. Yeah, like I said, I apologize for not being able to no, get better right. answers. But like I said, for me... You know the 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 sound and the song and the, and the film you know it sort of merge in my mind and sure. you know I remember the moment and I remember the emotion and I can't necessarily like pluck out what was the music that was playing at that time. It's like I I would uh, I I'm the kind of hipster d bag that if people especially when Glee first got very popular or when the White Sox won the World Series and their theme song is "Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, I remind them that's the love theme from Monster. Journey's one of those love it. Hate it bands. Where, I, where do you fall? I uh, I used to bag on Journey constantly in my school newspaper column at really? Ball State. Yeah, my buddy Chris Palladino. Hi, Chris. Chris would call me as soon as the papers hit the hit the newsstands because I think I wrote something along the lines of I heard Journey's new box set. It's a forty five. Um, yeah, it's a lot of schmaltzy stuff. Although I will say they, that uh, the song uh, "Open Arms" yeah. is used. Decently in heavy metal. Yes. So there. Yes. <laughs> there, there's something. You, where are you on the journey scale? Oh, I love them. They're oh, great. okay. You can have them. That's great. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny. It's like seeing the music of your youth, like now now made fun of in pop culture, as like bad music from the past. Like I remember I was watching, uh, like what was the TV show? It was like something like Family Guy or South Park or something like that. You know, uh-huh. a, a hip show, and they had like a, a joke on there about uh, sticks. You know, and it's like, oh man, I grew up on sticks, and yeah, it's music for teenagers. But you know, if you're a teenager in 1985, that was some fun stuff. I, I believe uh, Joel Hodgson, uh, film sociology, I guess Joel Hodgson, talked with the robots about how evil and hell works in subtle ways. For instance, for instance, Crow. What do you think of Hitler? Well, I hate him, of course. But what do you think of the band Sticks? Oh, they had one or two decent hits. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> By the way, new Mr. Science Theater on Netflix. Go check that out. What else have you seen that open this week? Uh, nothing else, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Either they didn't screen it for us, uh, and there was, unfortunately, quite a lot of those. You and I were discussing prior to coming on air about uh, we've had good luck with getting uh, screeners from the studios, but this week they just did not do well. Uh, they did schedule a last-minute screening of Their Finest, which I was not able to get to, All and right. then they were nice enough to actually get me a screener, which I, unfortunately, they didn't even get it to me until last night. I was already seeing Unforgettable, so... Sorry, guys, I fell down. But uh, that's uh, uh, Gemma Arterton, World War II. A lot of World War II and World War I movies coming out the last few weeks. She plays a uh, British woman who is 
uh, conscripted into the effort to make propaganda films for the British during the Blitzkrieg because everyone's mood is really in the toilet and uh, they're making all these happy, happy, wonderful, light and glowy films. And, joy, joy, yeah. Yeah, definitely an interesting looking film. Uh, Lone Scherfig directed that. She did an education. Oh, yeah, few, we like not, that. Not, not too long yes. ago. So I'm, I'm interested to see it. So uh, if I get time, I may actually take a look at the screener this weekend. So, and uh, yeah, and anytime I mention Jamma Artisan, I can hear. Um, I can hear a former IFJA member, uh, her eyes rolling. That's Gina. How you doing? She didn't like her? No, I liked her in Tamara. I think I, I think I deemed Tamara Drew the poster of the year, and uh, I'm a pig. So I like her. One of the reasons I like her is she's a real chameleon. I love actors who are like that, mm. who can look and sound and be so different from each other from, from film to film. Well, apparently she is going to be in the National Theater Live uh, production of Hedda Gobbler. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, I want to get through a couple other things that are opening um, at the Artcraft. Now, again, this all depends on when you're listening to this. So if you're listening on Saturday, good for you. Sunday and Monday, can't help you. But tonight at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin, it's a 21 and over event. Brew and View, The Big Lebowski. Excellent. I think that would I have I saw it when it opened in theaters, and I remember at the time the audience was confused. Yeah, because this was the follow up to Fargo, and people hadn't figured out yet. When you have a Coen Brothers film about a kidnapping, it's not about will the will the kidnapped person be rescued? Yeah, I mean I'm trying to remember because it's you know the film has such a long long tail now of evolving. Yes, but like wasn't it like a commercial failure when it came it, out? It didn't do. I think it did think, okay, uh, but it wasn't. It, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a colossal flop. But I mean, this was their follow up to Fargo, where you know people were expecting people were expecting uh, Oscar caliber stuff, and. But you know what could not be denied at that time, and if you never forget this, folks, the rhythm. The, I, I think I compared John Goodman, Jeff Bridges, and Steve Buscemi to like a jazz trio. They yeah. are that quick, that fast, and they read each other so so well. And we're still quoting it almost twenty years later. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, see that on the big screen is always good. Um, April twenty eighth and 29th, you have To Kill a Mockingbird, which I would love to see on on the big screen sometime. And then uh, May 12th and 13th, The Wizard of Oz, May 26th and 27th, Back to the Future. Over at IU Cinema, again, depends on when you're listening to this, um, 7 o'clock tonight, The Confessions from 2016 is a part of the uh, New Trends in Contemporary Italian Cinema. Monday the 24th, The Lure. Thursday the 27th and and Friday the 28th, the 2016 drama Personal Shopper with Kristen Stewart. Saturday, April 29th. Oh, boy. Cine Kids, 3 o'clock, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I wonder how many kids and how many students will be there. Hmm. Happy 420 to those who did. Um, the Lure at 7 o'clock. And then Saturday the 30th um, at 3 o'clock, The Half is a part of the International Art House Series. And then at 6.30 p.m., Sunday, April 30th, is a part of their Scorsese's Men of Faith Series the Last Temptation of Christ, mm. um, a film that I, I don't think it even was screened in, in – I don't think it even played in Indianapolis when it came out. I had to wait till it came out on video. And uh, what I what I always remember is there there are no 70-minute biblical films. Yeah. There's a lot of territory to cover and a lot of people processing it even though they didn't see it. Yeah. Um, um, powerful stuff from Scorsese. To this day, I still have not seen it. Really? One of two Scorsese films I've not seen, the other one being Kundun. They were part of this series. You should have gone down Bloomington. Yep. So, um, By the way, you can borrow them if you want. 
<laughs> I'm that guy. Um, it's interesting. There's there's a group of guys that uh, that I, I hang out with from time to time in Richmond. They get together, and I'm the pup of the group. These are retired gents, and they get together and they watch movies. Uh, well, I would I would love to be a retired gent who watches movies. I know, but I well I'm anyway. But this this past week we watched um, the 1927 Cecil B. The Mills King of Kings. Mm. So two and a half hours again, no short biblical films, and of course a lot of big eyes and big pointing because it's silent movie acting. And uh, but you know a few there's not a, there's a few decent moments and there's also a few moments going yeah Demille directed this because yeah. it has huge stages you know huge uh, studio space and thousands of ex hundreds of extras maybe but um, but one of the films that we were talking about I, that maybe bringing in to the to watch is Silence which yeah. I think you know still we're still the, not enough people haven't seen Silence have, have seen Silence yet so yeah you know we we struggled to see that film it was like the one film we couldn't get to see before our awards and I think I think and, and several others of the Indiana film critics have chimed in that certainly wouldn't have been a player in our awards if they had yeah that was in my top five so. yeah me too if if I was I, I didn't actually go back and redo my top ten list because to me it's sort of a you know the One, time and place the, you know it's like they had their shot to get the list and they didn't so but yeah it would certainly would have made my top five I tend to do one at the end of the calendar year because I'm obligated and then when it gets to be Oscar time I just kind of go well, has anything changed and and this year it would have uh, okay so that's over at IU Cinema it's drive-in season it's April and it's drive-in season do you remember the last time you were at a drive-in uh yeah 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 okay so probably I saw didn't they do a remake of the King and I. The animated one, yeah. Was it? Was, wasn't there a live action one too? Not maybe like in the nineties. I can't try. Oh wait, wait, oh you mean no, not the King and I. Um, with, Anna and the King. Anna and the King with Chow Yun Fat and Jodie Foster. Yes. I saw that one at the Ocala Drive-in in Ocala, that was Florida. Drive-in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Abdul Kim Shabazz and I have joked about having the art house drive-in that you can have hot dogs and nachos while you're watching Bergman and Fellini. That yeah. that's a bit much. That's cool. Yeah. Do you remember what the second feature was? Oh, we we only no, stayed for the oh, for the first. It, they didn't do double features. It was oh fine, okay. Yeah. But anyway, it is it is drive-in season, so we have to check in. And of course, occasionally we have odd pairings because I love odd pairings. It's because it's either it, it more likely it's uh, the same studio or maybe a similar genre, but not really. But um, we have the fate of the furious. And the Belko experiment. I don't know anybody who saw the Belko experiment. Yeah, that was, that was the, the one the, about uh, people. It was, it was essentially the Saw film. Saw meets Office Space. Yeah, or something like that. Saw trapped in a building, and there's yeah. like 50 people instead of. Oh, I'm sorry. The poster says Office Space meets Battle Royale. Whatever. That's, yeah. that's kind of that. So, yeah, Fate of the Furious, half a billion dollars in one weekend worldwide, but still. And uh, at, at the screening, it was great. And this is this is this is something that Chris and I both witnessed. And some of you should think about this, especially when uh, if you are a parent. Um, but Ed Johnson out of Nuvo, our buddy, go you could read his stuff at Nuvo.net, um, was there with his son. And, of course, his son, Donnie, very, loved, very loved, the, loved the film and came over and told us that he loved the film. And then he asked – I can't remember if he asked his dad first before he asked us, but then they asked his. He asked his dad what he thought of the film, and Ed's response was, "I'm happy you enjoyed it." Yes, I love that you love it. <laughs> I and, love you, and I love that you love the film. And that's that, those are you know besides the words to live by normally on the show. That's kind of words to live by in this one. I had 
my my daughter saw a film in school, and and I I waited until she finished it because I have told the story. This is the last film I technically walked out of, but it doesn't count because it was the final scene of the film. But my daughter finally saw Pay It Forward, oh. and she liked it. Yeah. And of course, I I'm I'm tending to cool my jets in cases like this. I told I explained to her because for those who remember, that's Kevin Spacey with the burned face. Uh, Helen Hunt as Aaron Brockovich and Haley Joel Os- the last the last big push of Haley Joel Osment and it you know I had not heard the term pay it forward and I I was old and not as old as I am now but old and cynical and I didn't quite really get into it and in the final moment there is a scene that is very uh, very reminiscent of an old Coca Cola commercial with <laughs> I like to teach the world to sing that's immediately I think I had said out loud really and I got up and left. <laughs> that is that's the last film I walked out of, but I don't count it because it's the last scene. Barbed Wire is the last film I really walked out of. Yeah. I, Thirty minutes, I went, oh my god, they're making Casablanca. I'm done. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, you know that I've long liked bragging that I never fell asleep in a movie and I never walked out of a movie. Although I thought about it, I broke the sleeping one. It was a kung, it was Kung Fu Panda two that I fell asleep in. <laughs> Home Gr- or at theater. Uh, oh, at the theater. Oh, at the theater. Okay. I don't count at home because that's not that that's, that doesn't count. I'm talking about in Very the good. theater. Very good. But you know, we had a newborn at the time, and we were getting a lot of sleep. So uh, it was actually like during one of the action scenes that I fell asleep, not like during the talkie. You stuff. were tired. Yeah, and since then I, I've had like you know, like it might be like literally like I nodded off for two seconds, but that was it. Uh, and I've still said that. Oh, but I, I can still say I've never walked out of a movie. Technically, that's not correct um, because I did have to walk out of um, Tree of Life. With Terrence Malick, and if you remember the screening, oh, yeah. we were all there. It, there was a problem with the print. It was a horrendously long movie, and they didn't even start it for like forty-five minutes. And then you know, yeah. I, I got to a point where I was just like, I I had a meeting at work. No, that's I, a that's had, a work thing as opposed to I'm disgusted by it. I'm yeah, done and I did it. end up you know, so I missed like the last twenty minutes, and I did end up following up and and seeing it. So. No, uh, that, that doesn't that, really. No, count. that doesn't I mean, count. saying saying I walked out of a movie means I walked out in disgust because I didn't want to see the rest. Right. Of it. I mean, you know, we also had to, we have we had we had a famous moment of where they screened for us. There will be blood, and we were really into it. And then we found out they they put the reels in the wrong order. <laughs> I wasn't there for that one. <laughs> oh I've heard I've heard about that. It was like this is fascinating. It doesn't make sense, but this is fascinating anyway. Yeah. Okay, uh, back to the tips. This is what happens here at Film Sociology. This is your pledge dollars at work. Um, screen two, unforgettable, followed by going in style. Whoa! The same studio, maybe? I don't know. I think there was one. I think I, I think a couple years ago it was like Fault in Our Stars and X Men. I went, oh, yeah. one for the guy, one for the girl, I guess. But yeah, that's that's a weird pairing. Yeah, going in style. That's the the oldsters turn to crime. That's not George Burns, Art Carney, and yeah. and uh, Lee Strasberg. And I still have a problem. With the lineup scene. Yeah. Everything, yeah, old people being feisty, that's fine, and wearing sunglasses in slow motion and smoking weed, so you don't that's put fine. the witness in front of the Yet alone criminal, even if he's 80. Yet alone a small child, so I called bollocks on that. Yeah, the, the, what I said about this one is, is I'm not sure if that film passes the old Gene Siskel test. Gene Siskel had a, yeah. his own rule he made up that it said, would you rather watch that same cast of actors just sitting around at lunch to, you know, chatting about whatever. Yeah, I would. I would love to have br- watch a brunch of these three guys. Yeah, Alan Arkin, Michael Caine, uh, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. Yeah. That 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 would be a great That's lunch to, to to spy in on. And I want a grocery store that hires Anne Margaret. Yes. So, uh, screen three: The Smurfs, The Lost Village, and Boss Baby. 
Yeah, that one makes sense. Do you have to? Did you have to see those? Oh, I I see all the little kid movies, you know, uh, and I see them with my kids, and they love it, and, and you they, love and that they love it, and I I love that they love it. I, I I wish they would love something better. You haven't told them that, have they? No, but like if I, you're listening to this podcast, I, hi I, kids. Like when we go to, you know, we watch movies all the time at home, and I I am totally like trying to steer them. <laughs> Like, you know, like my kid, you know, like I show them when I get new DVDs or whatever, and like they immediately, when they saw Norm of the North, they're like, oh, and they watched it a few times, you know, and at some point I had to just misplace the DVD. I was like, have you, have you, and yeah, same same with Monster Trucks, I misplaced that DVD. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, I was like, hey, look, Coraline, we could watch Coraline instead, that's that's not missing. The, The only time... And I wound up fessing up to this to her, but um, she saw the trailer for Shark Tale, and and I remember I saw it. We, I saw a screener of it, and I didn't tell her. And then I just kinda, this is the animated one. This was the animated one with Will Smith and De Niro, and it's really really bad. Peak, and, peak Will Smith. Oh God! And How much do you think he got paid to do the voice work? A, in a that? ridiculous amount. Enough to you know enough for uh, twenty Billy Wesses. I'm guessing maybe fifty. But but yeah, it was one of those, and I just didn't bring it up. And if she ever brought it up, I was like, I think it's gone. Yeah, that's that. And then I later told her, and she was she's okay, she's fine on that. But that, anyway, you might have to fess up eventually. I really want to know about voice work, like when you because know, that's really a modern thing, you know. Really, like um, Robin Williams and Aladdin was the first time they got like, hey, let's go get somebody famous to do a voice in an animated film. Right. Um, and now it's all that. And I, I just want to know, like, I, I want to know, like, how much are they getting paid? How much are they, you know, per, you know, involved in like the screening right process? How long are they actually in a sound booth recording? I want to know hours, minutes, days. I want to, I want to shift that because before, I think that that was part of the ad campaign. But you, you have to, I think if you remember, you had you had famous people doing voiceover stuff, but it just wasn't as highlighted. Burt Reynolds did, you know, All Dogs Go to Heaven. George C. Scott did The Rescuers Down Under. This was also downtime in animation. But but yeah, I think as far as pushing it above, I don't think Williams. Okay, maybe Williams wasn't listed in the in the po- in the ad campaign, but it was a huge push. Everyone knew for about him. It. Everyone knew about it. So anyway, but yeah, I, I, I see where you're going on that. I, I, just because you know, I, I take heart that there are people in the world who get paid gobs of monies to not, money to not work very much because I wonder I want to be one of them. Yes, but, and, so but, I can be the guy who watches movies. But, instead. but the one, but the one of, uh, and we heard stories of like Billy Crystal and John Goodman recording together, or Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh working together in the studio during El, Road to El Dorado. You know those sort of things. That and and it, it'd be fun to tell if you can do that. But yeah, that's that because there was a period where if if you had a name, it's almost like the musicals. If you had a name, whether you had your know, voice acting, you know, voice vocal skills or not. You you got to do an animated film, yeah. Like, like and on TV too, you know, like like the big one is The Simpsons, which is you know coming up on like its thirtieth year, thirty what are they twenty eighth season they're yeah. into. And I was reading about you know like the big four or five voice actors that you know most of them aren't household names. Hank Azaria, you know, Harry Shearer are probably the closest. Yeah. Um, and you know the, the show is not quite as popular as it used to be. And so a few years they they cut them all back. Um, from uh, each of them was getting four hundred thousand dollars per episode. They cut them back to three hundred thousand dollars per episode, and you say, okay, well, you know, the Friends were getting a million dollars each per episode back in the day. But, and I'm trying not to be mean to these people because you know they built something that's enduring. But really, I mean, like if you're the person who does the voice of Lisa Simpson for an episode of The Simpsons, and you know, average, assuming it's not a Lisa episode, 
you know, where she's just there. Uh, and so, she, I mean, well, she's got probably, what, like 25, 30 lines of dialogue? Don't know. Tell me, how long does that take to record? If it's, it's, if it's more than a day, I mean, I, I think you or any, me or any competent person could knock it out before lunch you're in also, one day. You're, I, I bet you also figure out the dollars per catch with a wide receiver. Yeah, probably, but yeah, you, you could play the same game in a lot of you know right. sports and entertainment fields. But but seriously, three hundred thousand dollars to read like twenty five lines of dialogue. That you know that, However, that is. If to be fair, Julie Kavner and those guys never had to make the movies that the cast of Friends did on their break. That's a bad <laughs> lot, and that, that's and actually that's a seriously. I I think we we need. I might have to go through the list because there's a there's a series I'm developing. And by the way, brainstorming during the show here with Chris Lloyd of the Film Yap of. When actors are doing a film either as a break from their show or as a break from their franchise. Yeah. And I think of stuff like um, Roger Moore in Folks or yeah. Sean Connery in doing Marty. But there's got to be a list of some of the best and some of the worst film breaks yeah. from your day job. And I, I'm, I'm almost certain because I remember, you know, obviously we, you know, we were in our 20s when Friends – was huge, and they almost all got at least one film. And guess what? They were all not great. Yeah. I think Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion might be the top of that list. Yeah, if you think about those. It's more like careers rather, like you know, like Jennifer Aniston is still, and she's you know, she's gotten better. <laughs> yeah, and she's done a few small films where she was right. really good, like Good a Girl. Good Girl yep. Yeah. So anyway, we will have to work on that list. Oh, Screen Four. This is a first at the Tibbs Drive In. Their double bill. For you faith folks out there, The Shack and The Case for Christ. Oh, wow. There's a double feature for you at the at Screen 4 at the Tibbs Drive-In. The Shack is the one where Octavia Spencer plays God, as I recall. Yes, sure. And Sam Worthington and, and whatever. So And Tim McGraw's in that as well. Um, also, at the Skyline Drive-In, Fate of the Furious and Get Out. Hmm. Glad that Get Out's still getting some traction. I still haven't seen it. I'm probably going to have to catch it on video. Yeah, I don't want to scare the kids with that one. Yeah. That's good. Um, okay, so those those are out there right now. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Uh, 1-800-233-0020 or go to WFYI.org slash give to support WFYI programming and film sociology and all that. Okay, um, not a whole lot of titles at the video store. Um Probably the big title, and it's become the big, I think one of the surprise hits of the year, was uh, in an upswing for M. Night Shyamalan, his uh, thriller Split. Yeah, which, you know, he's, people, he's had a real uh, resurgence by sort of getting back to his roots of horror, psychological thrillers, low budget. He made, uh, was it The, the Visitors? Visit. I, and, the and, visit. and that was that was another. Five, $5 million film made $100 million. And I think well done. I, yeah, I enjoyed I thought, it. And, now, and Split. I also enjoyed Split. Yeah, yes, it's it's the horriest of horror films, Chestnuts, the split personality film. But you know, uh, but you, James McAvoy's great. He has I, I loved, fun. I, loved, I loved how like literally he he would physically transform on the screen as he shifted from personalities without any you know makeup, wardrobe, you know, twisting of the neck or any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, like he plays like the the guy and he seems to just loom massive, like he's seven feet tall, and then you know he's a, playing like a tiny little boy. The, and his character's supposed to have, I believe, like twenty, and and, and no, it's not. So it's twenty three. But but I think not, we get about a highlight of six, four or five. Tw- so anyway, still strong stuff. And yeah, Betty Buckley, who I always love seeing, she was fun uh, as, as the psychiatrist. As psychiatrist. And the girls are good. I found I I was going. I, I can't remember, but one of the girls was in the Bronze, and and this is and I always remember it's. It, 
it is what it is. It's a it's a decent pulpy little thriller, and and then the uh, the bleep in the punch bowl is the final shot of the film. Which if they take it out, you are fine. But and I, I guess I don't I don't want to really give it away. But it it M Night Shyamalan tries to resort back to his earlier glory days, and I I think most of us felt he didn't earn it. Yeah, yeah, I still like the film. I mean, it. Oh, yeah, I do too. It, it is funny at times, and and he lands on the humor with both feet. He doesn't run away with away from mm-hmm. it. And I think that moment is kind of like the capper of goofiness. It, it it also helps seeing it in a in a full house. Now you know this would be different when yeah. it's on video, but I think also there's there's moments at least for me as a critic if if I'm watching this and it, and we've seen horror films like this hundreds of times, and if if they are doing the cliches, but it doesn't bother you. For instance, a half-dressed girl walking slowly down the hall, yeah. as opposed to, you know, tiptoeing fast or anything. And you know, if those things and Get Out is like that to another to a, to a certain extent of if you know if if you're mentally or physically yelling at the screen and it doesn't bother you. Yeah. So and I think Split does that. The, uh, the but wait, nine, mil- nine million dollar budget, two hundred and seventy five million dollars worldwide. I'm sure people had points on that one and are rolling in it. Yes. So good good for them on that. Don't try to make the franchise thing. Please don't. No, no don't do that. Because guess what? I, not really giving away stuff, but Bruce, Weir, Bruce Willis just doesn't care anymore. <laughs> um, the other film, and we, and this reverts back to Silence. There was one other film that was being previewed for award consideration near the end of the year, and the studio just kind of pushed it aside. And it's called The Founder. This is the oh, one with yeah, Michael yeah, Keaton. yeah. And is that out this week? It is out this week. Boy, I hope people go check that out. It is, and it's, and it's uh, he, uh, the story of Ray Kroc, the guy who founded McDonald's. Oh, but wait, he could, or did he? He he did find McDonald's. He also kind of ripped off the McDonald brothers. Played yeah, which by, most people, including right. me, didn't even know there really were McDonald brothers. Yep. That, that they didn't just make that. And, and in this one, played by Nick Offerman and classic that guy John Carroll Lynch. Really, both of them really work well together. And it's dr- uh, and who plays the the girlfriend to be soon to be wife? Oh, Linda Cardinelli. Yeah, she's really and, good. And he's in married it. to Laura Dern. So way to go, Mike. But uh, it's directed by John Lee Hancock. It's written by the gentleman from The Onion who gave us The Wrestler and Big Fan. And it's kind of a fast food social network, for yeah. lack of a better comparison. Yeah, and John Lee Hancock he did The Rookie and The Blind Side, Saving Mr. Banks, and uh, and I mean it it kind of captures. These two guys who had like a factory like precision of good food made fast, and Keaton's character was was a milkshake machine salesman who kind of took advantage, you know, had a business opportunity and ran with it, and then took all the glory and most of the money with it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because when you they really present it from all sides, you know, they don't glorify him, they don't portray the the McDonald's brothers being. Because I mean, here's the, the truth is. You know, they had one shop. They tried to start a second and a third, and it didn't go anywhere. Right. And if Ray Kroc hadn't come along, those guys would have lived and died with their one restaurant, probably made a nice upper-middle-class living, and that would have been the end of it. They ended up getting uh, checks for—it uh, worked out so that the, they each got checks for after taxes. They got a million dollars each in, like, 1962, which is a boatload of money. Yeah. Um, they didn't get the franchise fees that they were supposed to get and were promised— which obviously that was that was a royal screwing, but still, you know, it's one of those things because it's like you needed the people, the purists, to come up with the idea and make the perfect thing, but then you need the huckster, the Ray Kroc, to actually go out and sell it and spread it around 
and you know really turn it into something. I mean, it's like it's how. Yes, there was a lot of conflict there, and yes, Ray Kroc was a jerk in a lot of ways. But the truth is, you know, those three people needed to get together in order to create something great. Yeah, and and Keaton's really good. And at bring it. back the McRib. Ew. God. <laughs> Why don't you have Soylent Green while you're at it? God, there's these places. They're called barbecue restaurants. Have that. Um, they can't get me in and out in 90 seconds. That's your problem. Uh, <laughs> sit down. Have a meal. Well, anyway, it, but the film, I was I was getting flashbacks of young Michael Keaton back in his night shift days. This kind of a, or Mr. Mom or Gung Ho. It's just kind of fast-talking, likable guy. Um, of course, he's married to Laura. Yeah, he, he marries, he's married to Laura Dern, but he winds up cheating on her and divorcing her. But... But yeah, I think. Part yeah, of- and by the way, you know, he and Ray Kroc are not that the actor and the uh, the person were not that far apart in age. Ray Kroc was like you know fifty four mm-hmm. when he met the McDonald's Brothers. He was basically you know a failure. And and now we have this. So yeah, it is very similar to I not, say it's, it's a failure hour. to be fifty four. Just that no, he was. We got a few he years was. ago on it. Yeah, no. him, not us. But. Um, but so anyway, it's it's really really good, and and the film was put out by the Weinstein's, and I think like like Paramount, the Weinstein's kind of pushed that aside so they could push Lion. Yeah, there and was it there was a lot of films. There's actually one I just was writing my video review, but it comes out in a couple weeks called Gold with Matthew McConaughey. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There, that, did that come out in sixteen? I thought that was in seventeen. No, that was sixteen. Okay. They, they 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 pushed it for the awards, and it didn't really go anywhere. And you know. It, not great films, but I think very much good films that are worth a look, and you probably haven't even heard of. So definitely the founder. That was um, that didn't make my top ten, but I always do my list of the best of the rest, and that was absolutely in there. So please go check that one out. Yes, definitely. And there's only really kind of one old title of note on uh, Blu-ray uh, from Criterion: Tracy and Hepburn, Woman of the Year. I haven't seen that one. And well, it's on Criterion, so maybe you'll. Get I have it. no excuse anymore. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know? Do you know how many films are in my? If you take my Netflix queue, my watch list on Amazon Prime, and my watch list on HBO Go, oh, and my Netflix DVD queue, and my Netflix streaming queue, between those three sources, it's it's like 150 films I have lined up. I'll tell you what, and this is just between Chris and I. You photograph your pile and send it to me. I will photograph my pile and send it to you. Well, no, but let's put them on Facebook. I don't know if I want to show people my house. That's oh, oh, you meant your pile yes, of uh, actual your, the pile of movies you have not watched yet. Oh boy, see, huh? Yeah, not not the whole collection. That's that's and that's and that's just keep, asking for and that's, trouble. My pile will not be uh, as impressive because I I keep so very few DVDs. I okay. mostly give them away to Fine. film uppers and stuff or whatever I can do with them. Okay, well, anyway, just, just ponder that. But no, we're not, I'm not I'm not putting my house on lo- social media for these miscreants out there. Let's put it this way. I have the, um, uh, I think it's the 30th anniversary edition of Do the Right Thing DVD that's still in its cellophane. Wow, Mr. Yeah. Cellophane. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, be, I know you've had this where, I, I don't know, but I, I tend to be, I, once I start a box set, I have to get through it. And I had two major hurdles. Finally, the the Mad Max collection, which also has the uh, the chrome, the black and white print of Fury Road, and then um, just a few days ago, I finished the Criterion of Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. Oh, see, I was strong, strong stuff. Both of those. See, that's my regret of my you know not regret, but you know of my life situation right now is, and I say this to people, they don't believe me, but it's true. I don't watch movies for pleasure. I only watch them to write about them or talk about them. 
because just it's just I would love to go back and revisit movies that I love. But it, it, it always comes down to you know, it's the same reason I don't hardly read any magazines. I don't hardly watch any TV. It's always a question of do I take that time to rewatch Before Sunrise or watch a new movie that I can like come here on the radio and talk about. Fair enough. I'm, so if you send me a photo of your pile, I'll tell you which films to talk about. Okay. <laughs> so it'll be work related. Uh, we're gonna dip in the. I'm gonna dip into the archives a little bit. This, these are films that are available online, or, or actually you have to buy them through the online store, whether it's MGM or United Artists. Or I'm saying uh, Warner Brothers or Sony, or as Kobe used to say, "Oh, I'll burn it for you for five bucks." Those, um, and I just found this at a shop from 1996, and I remember seeing the film, really liking it, and then revisiting it and liking it as well. But the the family drama, a family thing. This is the one with uh, Robert Duvall and James Earl Jones. Duvall is a an Arkansas man whose mother dies, and after his mother dies, she sends him a letter saying that uh, he she is not the biological mother. An African-American woman was, and here's your brother who you've never met, and he's a police officer in the south side of Chicago, and he's James Earl Jones. Yeah. It's uh, it's directed by Richard Pierce, who gave us uh, films like uh, No Mercy and Leap of Faith. And as I was going through the list, The Long Walk Home, um, Country, um, I, my favorite of the three 1984 farm dramas. That was the one with Jessica Lang. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Threshold, I remember, with Donald Sutherland. And one of his earliest films, I think his first feature film from 1979, I saw this in the theater with my dad, and I always talk to young students about this, about acting, but the drama Heartland, oh, yeah. the one with Rip Torn and Conchata Farrell. She's a mail, basically a mail-order bride uh, sent to live on Rip Torn's farm. And there was a scene with those two great actors having to birth a help birth a calf. Yeah, stuff you cannot teach in acting school. So, yeah, Donald uh, Sutherland never nominated for an Oscar. Nope. That's one of the, my, my biggest WTF yeah, film trivia things thrown out is you're like, oh no, Clue to ordinary people. Nope. So many. Nope. nope. Never Not nominated. So uh, Academy. Hey, you know. Get, yeah. get cracking on that. The film is is co-written by Tom Epperson, who gave us One False Move and The Gift. Um, but do you remember the other co-writer on A Family Thing? Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, wow. So, yeah, this is right before, uh, I think it was before Sling Blade or the same year as Sling Blade. But um, anyway, it, it's, a, it's a really nice, I mean, it, and it, we, we kind of complain about films like Going in Style or Las Vegas, where, you know, two older actors get a chance to work together. And sometimes it feels like that's the only reason. In, in, in it might have been with this case, but you also have a really nice script, really nice performances uh, from from everybody involved. This was the film that also I think introduced a lot of people to the the fine that lady Irma P. Hall, mm -hmm. who plays in this um, James Earl Jones blind auntie who can see everything, of course. And of course she was she later got a bigger push in uh, the Coen Brothers' The Lady Killers remake. But but just just a really nice family drama, and it also has one of my favorite. Uh, location continuity problems, um, uh, you know, and, and people who, and I know people who lived in Chicago and they watch ER would do this with that show, but James Earl Jones's character lives on the south side of Chicago. There is a shot of his house. You can see the loop, and they're south of the loop. And then there's a scene where Robert Duvall is at a club that I've been to many times, the Green Mill, which is located on the north side of town. <laughs> and he gets thrown out, and he drunkenly staggers back. And he also goes from the apartment to the club and back. Drunkenly staggers back to his house over the next three right. hours. So anyway, that, that that cracked me up, but it's I, it's still a good film uh, nonetheless. 
Okay, um, we just got a few more minutes, and to to paraphrase you, uh, our our oh the driving stuff. Oh, we'll get to that. To the dead people we like, because we don't have people we, we don't have time for dead people we don't like. Uh, described as blustery, stocky, and loud, general character actor Clifton James mm-hmm. passed away at the ninety five, and did a lot of TV. Going all the way back to noted films, and he's one of those you're like, oh, he was in that films like Experiment and Terror, David and Lisa, Black Like Me, Invitation to a Gunfighter, The Chase, you know, The Last Detail, The Iceman Cometh, Tick Tick Tick, Will Penny, lots of stuff. But in pop culture, he will always be remembered as Sheriff J W Pepper in Live and Let Die, and for some reason shows up inexplicably in The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Just really, you Southern sheriff's gonna go on vacation so he can be a part of the one of the most ridiculous car stunts. But anyway, so silly. He was also in Lone Star and Silver City. And anytime you can mention John uh, John Sales films, I'm good with that. Okay, we got a few minutes. Um, uh, we were talking off air about uh, riding in the car with my daughter who has her learner's permit, and so I kind of just said, uh, I just kind of threw it up online. <laughs> what is your favorite car moment? It's not necessarily a chase. And it's funny, people who are posting, like, just chases and people who are posting other things. Do you, do you have something that comes to mind? Yeah, and there's so many great, you know, I'm a big car guy, and yes. there's so many great car. Film sociology's car correspondent. Yes, and there's so many things, you know, scenes, chases, stuff like that. But, you know, when you asked me to think of one, I came up with one that's probably not one that would uh, most people remember, though. But it's planes, trains, and automobiles. And, has, and somebody actually mentioned that in this list. <laughs> and is it the one where uh, – so it's the Steve Martin character is asleep, the John Candy yeah. character is driving, yep. and uh, Ray Charles, the mess around, comes on the radio, and he's cranking up, he's getting yep. into the tunes. And long story short, he gets both sleeves of his jacket caught while he's driving, and he's trying to drive with his knees, yep. and ends up having just this huge... Uh, and just, you know, th- th- that probably be... There's a bunch of other great car scenes in that movie, amongst others, but that's the one that I really remember, because it's so genuine and fun. And it happens, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking you know, Big Lebowski, uh, don't smoke a joint while you're Jeff Bridges and driving. Yeah. Uh, somebody posted, my buddy Andy posted a picture of Janet Lee in Psycho. Stephanie wrote from Richmond, Miss Daisy. Sure, driving Miss Daisy. Um, Bob writes Thelma and Louise. Yeah, more than one person posted Tina driving a car in Bob's Burgers. Swamp Fever from Smokey and the Bandit 2. Um, there's no way you could come from my loins from Smokey and the Bandit 1. The start of Le Mans. I think we're parked from Up in Smoke. This is Backcountry from, uh, from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Somebody just posted a photo from Duel. <laughs> with with Facebook friends like these, um, yeah. There's so anyway. There's a lot of Repo Man, the Blues Brothers, of course. Mother Jugs and Speed, yeah. Going the wrong way, planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, as good as it gets, Marvin getting shot in the face in Pulp Fiction. Um, yes, the the lane cha- hot lane changing action in Mitchell, and so much more. So, yeah. Um, she's fine. <laughs> no, none of these things that we just discussed will happen to her while she's driving. Well, they probably no. Okay, not all. Not not Thelma and Louise, and not Bullet. We hope. Uh, hopefully, she slows down when she makes a turn. Yeah. Unlike my brother, and that's another story. And, and doesn't text and drive. And, and no, she's no, she's too terrified to do that. So anyway, and she took it in stride, and I've shown her some of these films. So anyway, la- ladies and gentlemen, you go to the filmyap.com, and I just realized. Next time I have you on, we have to talk about the hand. Yes, both of the hands. 
both of the hands. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons why I wanted him here in the first place, but we got caught up in stuff. We Or the film that got Michael Caine a garage. <laughs> a garage. So thanks to Oliver Stone and Orion Pictures for that. But no, Chris, thanks for hanging out. And yes, let's let's exchange photos just between us. Not for you people. And, uh, and, and we'll try to get you back on for big hand discussion. The big hands. No. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, words to live by. Soylent Green is people. Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Goodbye. Good night, California. Good night, Michigan. Cause whatever. See you later. 1-800-233-0020, WFYI.org slash give. Bye. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live!